Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast series Off The Record, I'm Josh, and today's episode's going to be slightly different. I'll be telling the tales of three folk singers and the unconventional lives that they lived. And these musicians have become cult figures as time has passed, and I'd really like to share their stories that could be mysterious, tragic, and at times, hopeful. Connie Converse The story of Connie Converse is the shortest and strangest of the three singers that I've chosen. She was born in 1924 in New Hampshire, After graduating from college, she moved to New York City to work for a printing house. At the same time, she began writing new songs, hoping to become a musician. Although she only performed in front of her friends on her guitar, she only had one public appearance, and this was on The Morning Show, in 1954. It was in this year that she recorded songs in the kitchen of Jean Deitch, one of her friends. And in 1961, Connie became increasingly frustrated with selling her music, as very few people were interested. As a result of this, she moved from New York to Michigan. Ironically, this was the same year that Bob Dylan moved to New York and was greeted with mainstream success. In 1963, she became a managing editor and almost entirely stopped writing new material. As she got older, Connie fell into a deep depression and began smoking and drinking heavily. In in 1973, Connie lost her job as a result of the company moving their operations. Despite efforts of family members, Connie remained depressed and unhappy with life. And finally, in 1974, Connie wrote a series of letters to friends and family where she explained that she planned to start a new life somewhere else. She packed her belongings into her car and was never heard from again. However, in 2009, music historian David Garland managed to track down all the recordings of Connie's music. And finally, 35 years after her disappearance, her debut album, How Sad, How Lovely, was released. The style of the album is very simple. And for the time that these songs were recorded, her narrative was completely untraditional and groundbreaking. This is where the album finds its originality, covering topics that were never incorporated in traditional music, let alone folk music, that at the time was highly political and straightforward. Her voice is beautiful and light, which gives an intimate effect that feels very personal and honest. There is a brilliant mix between her own personal desires and there's a sort of element of of humour that's used throughout her lyrics, The humour seems to come from the fact that she accepts that she'll never achieve these desires, which sort of really does undermine her cathartic sense of humour. But overall, I think the whole story of Connie Converse is completely intriguing and it happened over such a long time frame. Jackson C. Frank The story of Jackson C. Frank is tragic, bleak and hopeless, but through the pain and suffering that he endured came a spark of inspiration. He was born in New York in 1943, and in 1954, when Frank was 11, he was involved in a fire in his school where many of his classmates died, including his girlfriend, Marlene Dupont, who he based his song Marlene off. Even though he survived, he sustained burns to 50% of his body. Additionally, the burns he received also caused long-term health problems. Whilst recovering, one of Frank's teachers brought him an acoustic guitar to keep him occupied. He eventually received an insurance payout which he used to travel to England. It was in England he became friends with folk singer Paul Simon, as they were both immersed in the London folk scene. Frank released his debut album, Jackson C. Frank, which was produced by Paul Simon himself in 1965. His album is sincere and evokes emotion, but not in a melancholy sense. Frank had a strong and mellow voice, as well as having fantastic finger-picking skills. Many songs in the album are tragic, and was sung at a time when Frank felt lost and full of grief. A year later, 
even though Frank was well respected in England, his insurance payout was running out, as well as his mental state deteriorating. Naturally, he decided to return to America for two years. It was after these two years, when he returned to England, his depression had worsened, as well as experiencing severe writer's block. He simply couldn't bring himself to write music, and this destroyed his self-esteem. Years later, Frank got married and had two children. However, he was committed to a mental institution after his son died of cystic fibrosis. In a desperate bid to find his old friend Paul Simon, Frank wandered the streets of New York City. Unfortunately, Frank couldn't find him and wound up being homeless for years. And finally, in 1999, at age 56, Frank died of pneumonia and cardiac arrest. Even though Frank never achieved fame whilst he was alive, since his death he has become a cult figure and has inspired a new generation of folk singers, including Nick Drake, who is the final musician of this episode. Nick Drake. Inspired heavily by Jackson C. Frank, Nick Drake was also hugely overlooked and misunderstood. This, in combination with severe lifelong depression, resulted in a tragic loss of a fragile genius. He was born in Burma in 1948. Two years later, in 1950, he and his family moved to Tanworth in Arden, located in England. Both of Drake's parents wrote music, especially his mother, Molly Drake, who has recordings that have gained popularity since her death. These recordings are tonally very similar to music later created by Nick, which suggests that he was highly inspired by his mother. Growing up, he was greatly encouraged to play the piano and to tape record what he had made. In 1957, Drake began boarding school, and five years later went to Marlborough College, attended by many of his relatives. Many friends recall him being confident in his abilities and very impressive at sports. Throughout his teenage years, he was heavily involved with various bands and school performances. Many of those associated themselves with him expressed they didn't feel that they knew him very well. Drake's academic performance began to deteriorate as his passion slowly shifted towards music. However, in 1966, he enrolled at Five Ways College in Birmingham and won a scholarship to study at Cambridge University. He delayed his attendance, however, because he wished to spend time in France, where he would practice guitar and busk in public with his friends. During this process, Drake began to smoke cannabis and travelled to Morocco with his friends, According to those that he travelled with, this is where he was able to get the best cannabis. While in Morocco, he began to take hallucinogenic drugs, and many lyrics written in this period suggest his influences were these drugs. After these six months, Drake returned to England to enrol at Cambridge. His tutors believed that he was intelligent, but simply not willing to apply himself. This may have been as a result of his depression. In 1967, he had discovered folk music, and became immersed in the British folk scene. He began performing in local venues around London, he was then recognised by American producer Joe Boyd, who offered Drake a record contract. This greatly excited Drake, and he decided not to complete his final year at Cambridge. Throughout his career, he only performed live a handful of times, and these were attended by very few people due to his awkward stage presence. And in 1969, his debut album, Five Leaves Left, was released, produced by Boyd. But despite the album receiving positive reviews, due to poor marketing, it sold very few copies. In 1971, his second album, Brighter Later, was released. However, unlike the first album, Brighter Later featured large amounts of jazz and was much more commercial. However, despite expectations for mainstream success, the album sold under 3,000 copies. Joe Boyd later sold his record label to move back to America, and this, in combination with the album's lack of success, resulted in further depression for Drake. His family managed to persuade him to visit a psychiatrist, where he was prescribed antidepressants. He was encouraged to promote Brighter Later through interviews and live appearances. However, Drake refused. 
It was at this point where he started to become reclusive and withdrew from family and friends. Despite all of this, Drake began working on his third album, Pink Moon, and instead of being like Brighter Later, which he described as being too full, too elaborate, featured him and his acoustic guitar only, with the occasional use of a piano. Although Drake was very proud and happy with Pink Moon, he believed that he wouldn't be able to write again, and ultimately retired from music. This caused him to have a nervous breakdown in 1972, and was hospitalised. He remained at home with his parents until 1974, where he was found dead in his bedroom as a result of overdosing on antidepressants at the age of 26. It is unknown whether this was intentional, or a desperate measure being taken to find happiness. Nick Drake is a perfect example of a musician whose genius is only truly understood after their death. His three albums are now considered classic folk albums, and a number of documentaries have been made about his amazing life. Overall, I personally believe that these three musicians have had an immeasurable effect on folk music, and on the music industry as a whole, but were completely overlooked in their lifetime, so I think that's why it's important that... I think it's the entire reason that I wanted to make this episode, was to tell their stories and explain why they were so groundbreaking. And at some point in the near future, I plan to do reviews of these musicians' albums, especially with Nick Drake, because he's made three studio albums that I absolutely love. And I'd quickly like to thank everyone for listening, and if anyone would like me to listen to and review an album in particular, or review an entire musician's disc- discography, then please let me know. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'll see you next time.